Journo at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. Jared Ryle is the director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Before becoming the ICIJ's first non-American director almost 10 years ago, Jared spent more than 20 years working as an investigative reporter and editor in Australia, writing on subjects from politics to financial and medical scandals and police corruption. He led the worldwide team of journalists working on the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers, two of the biggest investigations in journalism's history. Under his leadership over the past seven years, ICIJ has become one of the best-known journalism brands in the world. Reporters Without Borders has described Jared's work with ICIJ as the future of investigative journalism worldwide, naming him as one of 100 information heroes of worldwide significance. Jared is a book author and TED speaker and has won or shared in more than 50 journalism awards Awards from seven different countries. And as he tells us on this episode of The Journo Project, Jared still calls on his experiences working as a journalist where his reporting career began in his native Ireland. Jared Ralph, thank you so much for joining us on the streets of your town, The Journo Project. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's wonderful having you. We were basically lucky to get you in transit, essentially, uh, just in Australia briefly before you go back to your Washington base for where you are with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. But there's a bit of a delay now, of course, with the coronavirus. So, yes, you might be here a bit longer. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's it's a difficult time for everyone at the moment. Um, But I guess it could also be a positive for us in that our model is is designed to be, you know, working remotely. And, you know, where it'll be problematic for us is we're we're in the middle of doing another project and we're getting ready um, to publish soon. And it's the filming that's going to be a problem. Our media partners are not able to travel in order to film. So we're now trying to decide whether or not we can publish on time. and, And also, you know, we have to think of in terms of impact because... We do one or two big projects a year and we need them to work. We can't afford to have failure. And um, yeah, so it's kind of a stressful time at the moment. Yes, I mean, for journalism, what you've done is so innovative with the International Consortium. Does it really highlight a lot of the press freedom issues maybe that that we've been discussing over the last few months look it does but it also is an opportunity again for journalism to be relevant i mean people are now turning to the media for news on the coronavirus almost you know on a hourly basis if it you know it does bring back the need for good information that is accurate i think you're seeing from the you know the leadership of some countries that the danger if you're not getting accurate information of what happens and i think now you're now seeing it in real time so i think it's an opportunity again for journalists to prove that journalism is actually useful and I guess that is the main reason what we're doing what we're doing we're trying to show that journalism can be done at a level where it actually is useful to society and is in the public interest it really does show 
I think almost how quickly society can break down in a way, doesn't it? The, what's been happening with coronavirus, does that show really how important journalism is and perhaps reminding people of that, getting that reliable information out when people are crying out for reliable information? Yeah, I think truth really matters. And I think this is another opportunity to show that. But I also think it's an opportunity for us to, to take advantage of technology again, because this, I mean, you know, we can now all work as journalists, at least from home, if we have to, as long as we have reliable internet. And again, we can also, you know, network across the world in the way ICIJ does if we have reliable network. So we can, you know, we can meet remotely, we can work remotely, we can help each other remotely. And, you know, and again, I think this is, you know, everything is an opportunity if you see it that way. Might be a challenge for um, Australia's NBN, but we'll see. <laughs> you know, if essential services start breaking down, then it, we're going to obviously be in, in trouble. But, but who would have thought that we'd be in a situation like, we're you know suffering right now where you go to a supermarket and the shelves are empty in Australia I mean none of us could foresee this so we are in it's incredible you know we're incredible times and we don't know what's going to happen next but at the same time it's, it's very important to be calm and to and to help people I also want to talk a bit about where this all began for you Gerard but of course you were before becoming ICIJ's first non-American director in September 2011 you spent more than 20 years working as an investigative reporter here at the Sydney Morning Herald and at the Age and also in Ireland before that. So really, what started your interest as a reporter? I don't really know. I mean, it, it, for me, it was more of a case of it was the only thing that I thought I could do. And it didn't require an amazing intellectual set um, <laughs> or amazing results in, in school. So I did manage to scrape into journalism college and I just, you know, enjoyed it from there. But I mean, I went through lots of different phases as a journalist. I, mean, I was working in rural parts of Ireland before I came to Australia. I worked in tiny little newspapers, you know, with four journalists. You know, I was probably more of a tabloid journalist at that stage. Than, than an investigative reporting, you know, reporter. But you know, over the years, I began to realise that the one area of journalism that I thought I could make a difference in was was this. Because if you have a story, and it matters, you can actually change things. And that, to me, is the most important thing about journalism. You can change things. Because you've done such a range of stories in your career, Gerard. Perhaps that rural Irish beginnings showed that you could do any topic because you're doing pretty much anything that comes through the door. That has has that stood you in good stead. Yeah, I think that basic training at the beginning where you needed to fill up a paper every week and, you know, you had to do four or five, six, seven stories a day really does help you. And I think a lot of journalists, like when they do investigative reporting, they're doing themselves a disservice by going straight into that kind of highly specialised area. You could say the same for any kind of area. Like specialising too soon, I think, can be a mistake because you're not seeing the bigger picture. So, yeah, I guess that, that background is helpful. And was there a sense of social justice as well? Has that been a motivation for you? I suppose I've seen that perhaps in your exposés to bring justice to the little people. Yeah, I think our backgrounds always inform us. I mean, I came from... I was brought up in Northern Ireland during the early stages of the of the Troubles, and we moved from the Northern Ireland to Southern Ireland. You know, I, I guess experienced firsthand what it was like mm -hmm. to be on the wrong side of society. So, you know, that does inform me. Also, you know, not being wealthy that kind of also makes you aware of what it's really like on the ground for, for most people. And I just think of your, your firepower expose and how critical that was and how widespread the ramifications of that turned out to be. It gave you a taste really of 
what was to come, perhaps. Yeah, I think Firepower was important for me in that it was a it was an interesting story that that really went global. I mean, the, to follow the story itself, you had to follow trails that went around the world. I mean, I, I travelled to Romania and to and to other places. You know, it, it introduced me to the world of offshore, which became very important. It did. Later on. Your yeah. first taste, yeah. and you, yeah. did you have any idea that yeah. this would be coming back later on? I suppose we don't as journalists often. Well, I sort of saw a pattern there. I mean, I always think journalism is about like good investigative reporting is about looking at patterns and finding patterns. I saw as a reporter working in Australia that a lot of crime ended up in this sort of secretive offshore world Ooh. where people, you know, criminals who were contacts of mine would always tell me, you will never find out. You will never, you know, there is so far you can go and then you'll never find out information beyond that. Mm-hmm. And it always intrigued me, especially when I was researching the book for Firepower, mm-hmm. when I kept getting told repeatedly that I would never, you know, find out what was really happening in the British Virgin Islands or in other tax havens that, that Firepower kind of led me to. And that, you know, to me was a challenge because I thought, well, if you could crack that, you've got to crack a very big story. And, and there had to be somebody with information. And so, I mean, Firepower was, uh, you know, a story about this guy who claimed to have invented a magic pill. Mm-hmm. He put the pill in your motor vehicle, made your fuel last longer. You know, he, he must have raised about a hundred, <laughs> you know, hundred million dollars in Australia. Incredible. You know, but mainly what he was doing was selling shares in a company in the British Virgin Islands, which he, you know, it's very easy to do. You create shares and then, but what he was doing, of course, here was illegal. He was selling these shares that he created in the British Virgin Islands into Australia and around the world illegally. But it, it showed you the secrecy you make because people really didn't know like even Australian authorities couldn't go to the Bridge Virgin Islands and find out any more information about this company so what he told people you know it was a kind of a myth and a lie and he was able to do that and that secrecy to me screamed out to be a very good story if you could ever break it and and it was in the end looking now at the investigations that you've coordinated i mean reporters without borders has basically said you're reinventing investigative journalism the panama papers is a good example of that and looking into those systemic how do these offshore identities thrive and survive in this in this world did you enjoy being able to bring that all together a few years later yeah, look, Panama Papers came about because of a series of previous stories. I mean, we started with the a story that actually was spun out of Firepower. So after I wrote the book on Firepower, somebody sent me a disc of information. And in that information, it was all of the accounts of a company in Singapore. And that, that, that was an offshore service provider. Basically, this company in Singapore would set up offshore accounts for people all over the world. One of the people that they helped was Firepower. And... In this disc was a lot of information about Firepower, but at that stage I'd written the book on Firepower and I thought I'd already covered most of the issues. Mm. But there were names from all over the world and other companies and other people. And so that's really what got me, you know, intrigued because I thought if I could ever tell the story in a global way, it would be a good story. And then about six months after I got a hold of the disc, I got offered the job in Washington, and it was one of the reasons why I decided to take the job. I didn't tell them, of course, that I was going there with the story. That was, again, something that wasn't <laughs> certain that I could ever you know, do it. 
but it was an opportunity and I guess you know you take that first opportunity it worked it worked spectacularly well in 2013 that led to a whole series of other stories like Luxburg leaks and and Swiss leaks these were all um, whistleblower related information that, that we managed to get a hold of and it was actually Lux leaks that Luxembourg story that led to Panama in, in a roundabout way but it's a, a very convoluted story but eventually information went to these two German journalists that we'd been working on with all, with uh, on the other stories they managed to get a hold of all of the offshore records of Mossack Fonseca in Panama and this was like 40 years of records of this big law firm that had branches all over the world that used to set up offshore accounts for people all over the world. I mean, it was a mother load of information. It was 11 and a half million documents. I mean, was it daunting at that point, Gerard, even at the, with the role that you had with so many journalists at, hopefully, in your network? Yeah, look, it started off much smaller than people. I mean, the myth is that we've got all of the information at the beginning. That's not what happened. Mm. In mm. fact, what we did was we managed to get a hold of a small amount of information with the Germans, so ICIJ and the Germans together, uh, arising out of the Luxembourg inquiry. That was also Mossack Fonseca. So we had a lot of the names at the beginning. The first tranche of information that came to the journalists um, in Germany was, I would say only, it was only a million documents at the time. So we initially started with one million, and then, the whistleblower John Doe would literally send updates all the way through 2015. So we we were getting another million more or less every month. And so we had to reintegrate that new million into the system we'd set up to search the documents. And then the journalists would have to start from scratch and search again because instead of searching one million, you're now searching two, three, four, five, six, all the way through, right to the very end. And so a lot of the names that became well-known, you know, Lionel Messi, the football player, and others spring to mind. We're only found quite late in the piece. So, you know, yes, it's daunting, but it was actually more challenging even than people know because you had to constantly update the database and then force, you know, like try and coerce a journalist into doing searches all over again that they may have done five and six, seven times. It was, you know, it was easy to get to, to get information, for information to get lost in the whole system. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was one of the names in the Panama Papers, but you will know that we didn't name Malcolm Turnbull on day one. And that's because we didn't know he was in there. It was because these documents were coming in all sorts of forms. It wasn't like an easy-to-search system that we had been given. We have to build a system to search it ourselves. And a lot of documents were just, um, you had to scan them basically into our system so you're using optical character recognition and in there some of these were quite old documents so they were very hard to read and the optical character recognition didn't pick up some of the details so when we were searching we obviously typed in Malcolm Turnbull and we couldn't find anything and what it turned out is that they had actually misspelt his middle name and it was Malcolm Bly Turnbull and so we didn't know it was in there until afterwards. Incredible. And what strikes me as interesting too, Jared, from a journalist's perspective, I suppose, but how to get all this network of journalists around the world to trust each other, not to scoop each other. I mean, how did you establish that? By making mistakes at the beginning. We Mm. we started with the, after I did the Firepower story and and the book and I went over to DC to take over ICIJ, I became 
it became very clear to me. I mean, basically, ICIJ means sold has this great network of journalists. In fact, it had been, it was like a club, basically. There was about 90 people, and they'd been members for a long time. And what used to happen is they used to get together once a year, once every two years. They would talk about journalism, and then if money ever arrived, they would sometimes do a story, and then lean on the membership to get publication. But the reality when I went over there to D.C. was it was really three people in a, in a basement of a building in D.C. with a fancy name. And it came out as a bit of a shock to me. I'd come from the Canberra Times at that point. I was deputy editor there. I'd quit the job. I quit Fairfax after 19 years, took a chance, went over to D.C. and realised that it wasn't quite what I'd expected. And I, you know, I had no photographers, I had no reporters, I had no resources, we had no money, we were about to run out entirely of money, because there was only two funders, and one of them was a Dutch foundation, and the grant was running out, I think, three months after I landed. And so I landed in September, September 11, um, 2011, and I just... It was pure necessity. I had to find a way to make this work. And what I thought at that stage was that rather than doing it the old ICIJ, which was where you would get funding, you would do a story, um, you would, you know, you'd hire journalists, you'd do a story, and then at the end of the story, you'd try and find a publication partner for the story. I decided to do the other thing. You know, I would find a great story, and then I would approach media partners and get them to give me their reporters. And again, when I say trial and error, I made mistakes at the beginning. The first story we did was on human, human tissue, and it was about, you know, basically how skin and bone from dead humans has been made into medical products around the world. A really good story, and we found that a lot of the there were two companies on Wall Street that were being traded based purely on human corpses being recycled into medical products. We thought it was a really good story because we found that the corpses were coming from Ukraine. They were coming from people who hadn't given proper permissions, hadn't been tested for pathogens and other mm. things. And then they were being relabeled as German bodies because they were going from Ukraine to Germany and then into the US. We thought we had a really good story. I remember approaching the Washington Post with the story after we'd finished reporting it and writing it. And I said to them, I've got this great story, it's fantastic. And their answer was, well, how do we trust the reporting? You, you tell us that these Ukrainian reporters are trustworthy, how do we know? We haven't been taking part in any of the reporting. So that was when it occurred to me that if I'm going to make this model work, I've got to involve the reporters from each media partner from the beginning so that they trust my, my judgment and our work. And so, again, when we were starting that first offshore story, again, based on the disk that I'd got from the source arising out of fire power, we thought, and again, it was a lot of documents at the time. I mean, it was at that stage the biggest um, leak in history. I mean, it seems small now compared to Panama Papers, but it was millions of documents. And my idea was that we would set up hubs around the world. We would have a hub in Asia, we would have a hub in Europe, we would have a hub in America. And I, and I literally sent a disc, I copied the disc, and I sent the disc to these hubs. And the idea is that the reporter would turn up for two days, look at the documents, find a story, and go home to their home country. And, they would, and of course, it was a complete disaster because... When you get there, you know, two or three days is not enough to look at complex documents. And the reporters, you can't just discriminate. You can't just isolate the Australian documents and give them to an Australian reporter because they think you're, you're holding back on them. They want to be able to see the connections to Brazil and to America and to France. And so we realized that we needed to put all of this on the cloud. And again, it was from making mistakes. So after months of... of 
making repeated mistakes, we learned that the only way we could do this was to take advantage of technology. So we ended up putting everything on the cloud and making everything available to the journalists over the internet, you know, password protected. And that way they could also fact check the story right up to the very end. And then we realized too that we needed to use technology to communicate better because if I was finding something amazing in Australia but it had a British connection, how was I going to communicate to my British media partner and, and colleague You know what I was seeing and was there information that I could give them from Australia what they could give me back from Britain. And so it was all through trial and error and so this first big project it was it was very big back in 2013 people don't remember it but at the time it was you know pretty sensational we worked with like 40 media partners in you know 40 or 50 countries it made headlines around the world and it was really the first time we tried to do this in a truly global way and it worked and it worked. The model yeah, worked. The model worked. And now you've gone the, on to yeah. other. Well, the technology was still pretty crude. I mean, we mm. we use pretty crude technology. We, I mean, but even right up to Panama Papers, we we had no. Again, you've got to remember, we were still working with a tiny crew of mm. people with hardly any money out of DC. So, this was my way of turning that on its head and by getting the resources of the media partners instead of having the resources myself, I was able to use their reporters and their platforms and their photography and their graphics and other things to sort of to pull everything together and that allowed me to turn a tiny little organization into something much bigger and because we were able to you know basically find a great story the media partners wanted the next story and so my job then was to really just find the next one and the next one and the next one and we managed to do that luckily in that you know one story leads to another always and we I think the next one we we did was I think we, we did China because we had a lot of material still leftovers we did a story in China we then did the story in Luxembourg which which had been reported before but not in a global way and that was a huge story in Europe and then we managed to get a hold of a bunch of documents from HSBC in Switzerland which turned into a very good story as well um, we did other stories along the way we were able to use this model to look at the World Bank for instance we looked at poisonings of people in, 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 in the Caribbean to do with the sugarcane trade and we, we just basically used the model in different ways with different stories until eventually of course you know Panama Papers came along and that was you know uh, that was like 400 reporters in 109 different countries all working together but we were still using some of the very basic tools that we had built I mean at that stage we had a communication platform that was built using a dating website basically oh really we, yeah we had adaptive <laughs> technology open source technology the system that we were using now at this point to search the documents was adapted from a li- something that had been built for librarians mm. you know we, we had approached um, companies in Silicon Valley and said can you give us your technology for free um, there was one company in particular here in Sydney called Newix that we had that had been very good to us from day one and when I went to the head of Newix here and I said look I can't tell you what we want to use your technology for but if we ever do anything important we'll always acknowledge you and then they, they got a huge boost out of Panama Papers like Newix was a, um, a system that allowed you to ingest large amounts of documents on a laptop or sort of a strong computer and it would immediately you could search all the documents and see all the links 
And um, it was, you know, and again, we, we also used something called the Curious, which again is a startup in Silicon Valley that allowed us to put all of the documents into nodes. So each node being a, like a name or an address or an offshore company would be a node. And so you could see incredibly complex patterns using this technology. And again, we got it for free. I mean, the classic example in Panama Papers of it working was we realized about six months into the project that we had a lot of material on FIFA, which is the world mm. soccer body. Mm. And at that point, what alerted us was all the, the FBI began to inquire into FIFA at that stage. And you began to see some of the names of the people they were investigating. And we put the names into, the, into our system. We saw we had them. And then we used this nodal technology to map the whole picture of what we had. And we found that like one node through many, many complex ways, got back to another node. And we realized that you know, one set of nodes were the people being indicted by the FBI, and this one node that they all went back to was a law firm. And that law firm was owned by somebody who was sitting on the FIFA Ethics Committee, and he was the one setting up the offshore accounts of the people being indicted, which is a really good story. We would never have been able to find it if it hadn't been for this technology. It makes me think, is this really the future for journalism more widely? Is that collaborative approach, particularly, I think you're in Australia with AAP collapsing, we're going to have to really establish trust with other journalists with other media organizations that are worthy of that yeah it is about trust though i mean you've got to make sure when you're setting up these collaborations that nobody is competing and it's easier to do that across borders than it is Mm. inside a country because what we try to do is set up one tv station one newspaper one radio station in each country and then there's no incentive for anyone to jump they're gone because I mean it's all over the moment someone scoops anybody else it's all over but you you are seeing more collaborations here I mean you're Mm. seeing collaboration with ABC and and, you know Nine and Fairfax and and I think like people are realising that you get you actually it works because you get a bigger louder story you get more far proud of your story if you share and, and that's really what we have learnt as well that you're going to get a great scoop I mean if you know, you go back to Panama Papers, if we weren't there for that and if we hadn't been working with the Germans for a number of years beforehand, just say out of the blue they had managed to get this material on their own and publish it, there was hardly a single story that was German worthy. It's like me finding the original disc on Offshore Leaks. There was hardly any Australian stories in there that you could say. And so your temptation as a journalist, and if you have that, is you just, well, I can't use it, and you throw it away. It's it's convincing journalists that it's good to share. That if, you know, I mean, the two Germans, journalists who were at the center of, of Panama Papers, are, you know, they're now celebrities around the world <laughs> because of this, you know? I mean, they would, you know, again, we mutually benefit from, from each other. Have you found it interesting from your perspective in Washington, seeing some of what's been happening here in Australia, I think of the AFP raids last year and the collapse of AAP, as I've mentioned, some of the implications for press freedom. When I worked here for 20 years, it always struck me that this was one of the most difficult places in the world to be a journalist. And I think that all I'm seeing now is, is, is confirming my views. We do not have press freedom in Australia because the defamation laws here prohibit you being a journalist. But I also think that that's led to a lot of very very sloppy journalism. A lot of the journalism that is practiced here is not very good because there's no incentive for it to be good, you know. I mean, in America, for instance, as long as you're 
fair to the person, you're not showing any malice. It's very difficult to sue. But that requires you then going to the person that you're about to write for sometimes weeks in advance and giving them the entire context of what you're about to do. And I think that makes for better journalism in the end. Whereas here, the practice is always to confront someone, sometimes even the night before you're about to go to publication. And that can lead to mistakes. And it can also, I think it can lead to worse journalism, if I can put it that way, because you're not giving the proper context. And I, I know I'm saying that because I, you know, I did that myself in the past, you know, because you were always worried about getting injuncted. And so therefore, you know, an injunction would stop you publishing. So you would go as late as possible to the person you were writing about because that was the way it was. It, it was. And then afterwards you would fight it out in court. And that I think has led to a poorer journalism. It's got a real yeah. secular effect, yeah. doesn't yeah, it? Isn't it that does. cause and effect? Yes. Yeah. But it also has led to the concentration of the media here because you mm. need to have very deep pockets to be a media owner in Australia because you were likely to be sued. I mean, you know, it, it was quite common to get a legal letter the day after publication here if you were an investigative journalist. So it was totally accepted. I was very shocked to learn that in America, if you get a legal letter, you really have to worry about that legal letter because it means that you have, you know, in someone's eyes, at least shown malice. Uh, a court case over there can be very expensive. Whereas in Australia, yeah, it's reasonably common. Well, in, in Australia, it's 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 incredibly common. Almost mm. every investigative reporter in Australia right now is fighting some sort of legal case involving some story they've done in the past. Mm. I mean, I'll give you an example. For me, that really brought it home was the Far Power story, which, again, if we can go back to that, because we've already explained what it is. Mm. I mean, that court case involved, basically, the, he was a con man who set up a con. A lot of people fell for that con. When I wrote about the story, he sued me, and his chief executive sued me. So in the end, and they didn't sue just the paper, they sued me personally. So I'm then facing four court cases over something that is clearly a fraud. And therefore, it needed Fairfax at the time to stand by me and to go to court and to fight that. And that cost... That was about $260,000 in the end to fight those court cases. Now, they were all thrown out. We were proven to be 100% correct. But Fairfax had to eat the 260000 because the guy was, as we always said, a con man. He couldn't afford to pay any of it. And so, basically, the only organisation that suffered here, apart from the victims of the fraud itself, was Fairfax. And now, it was much cheaper at one point for us to settle those court cases and I was being urged by the lawyers to settle. Really? Yes, and that was basically to admit that the stories were wrong and to settle because it was much cheaper than having to fight them in court. And so, you know, it goes, goes to my point that this is bad for everybody. It's bad for the public that you're writing about. It's bad for the journalists. And, you know, it also forces the situation which you've got now, which is a concentration of ownership. You need to be very wealthy to be able to publish here so that you can defend what it is you say. But you've got to keep seeing people make mistakes, journalists, because of the system. You know, it's designed to be faulty, which I think, I think if you're going to, there's no point in us as journalists saying that defamation laws need to change. The entire system, I think, needs to change. You know, it is bad here. It's as bad as Ireland, but it's worse than Britain, because even in Britain now they have what they call the Reynolds defence, which is based on Albert Reynolds, a former Irish prime minister who sued over there for something. And he eventually won the court case, but the judge only awarded him, I think, one pound in compensation because basically it, it almost created a scenario in, in Britain where if you are fair to the person, then the damages will not be very high. 
And so, you know, that has actually improved the situation slightly in Britain. But you're still seeing a lot of cases where people are going to Britain. Because we've really yeah. only got that high yeah. court precedent here, and that's quite flimsy, really, in many ways. Yeah. Don't I mean, I think, I think the whole system here needs mm. to be overhauled, but journalists mm. also need to recognise that a lot of the work that we're doing as journalists is... It's, it's sloppy at best, mm. you know, and it's careless. You know, and there's a reason so. for that, I suppose. It's, yeah. it's because of the system, yeah. Well, how do we establish that trust with the public again? That, because that is such a problem now, isn't it? Well, I, I think that we're, we're basically, when you see debates about this here, we're all, everyone's always taking a very narrow view and saying the defamation law is wrong or this is wrong or that's wrong. I'm saying to you the whole system here is wrong and then we need broad reform. And we need to also... Like, we need to concede that we need to do a better job as journalists. It would be harder to be a journalist under this new regime where you have to actually go to people you're writing about, give them a full writer response, show that you're not showing any malice. In, in you know, That's going to be a whole way, a new way of doing work here. Do you think it could be possible? I think it needs to happen because otherwise mm. what's got to, it's got to continue to be what you're seeing. Now you're seeing with AP closing an even narrower field. You've got fewer and fewer media outlets here. I mean, you're not going to see an online outlet here take on in any of the big guys because one lawsuit will wipe them out. And there are a few new little online publications that have started in Brisbane and Adelaide, but yeah, it is difficult, isn't it? Is that chilling effect? Well, they're also, they're never going to take risks. They're never going to write anything other than, you know, good restaurant reviews. And like they're, you know, they're sort of the type of information journalism as compared to, you know, investigative journalism. Uh, You know, you're not going to see any, I mean, you're also not going to see nonprofits like ICIJ operating from here because of the legal risk. You know, we're a 501c3 based in the US. You know, we want to raise money here, but it's it's difficult for us to... We can't set up a branch of ICIJ as a sort of a journalism entity in Australia because of the legal risk. It's even got those implications. Yeah. It's yeah. really... So, yeah, we want to be able to defend our work in the US. So what's next for you, Gerard? You'll be getting, going back... Once Corona has uh, finished its yeah, wave, I've got people now in eight different countries. So we have journalists in eight. Different, we have offices in DC. We have a little office here in Sydney. We have some people. We work for the Centre of Media and Transition in in UTS. So we have a little office there where they're very kindly giving us pro bono. We rely a lot on charity. I mean, we are a hundred percent charity. So we rely on people giving us donations. The business side of things is occupying my mind a lot more at the moment mm. because we we need to raise like five million US dollars. Year to keep going, and we're getting about ten percent of that from the public at the moment, from mum and mum and pop, and the rest you've got to get from foundations and from wealthy individuals and other people. I think the model works. I think we've proven that time after time we're able to get big stories. Our media partners now love us. We've got about one hundred and fifty media partners around the world that work with us regularly, everything from the New York Times down to little non-profit outlets similar to ourselves around the world. But the future is all about the next story. I mean, it's just the same when, when you're working as an investigative reporter anywhere. You're only as good as your next story. And so, yeah, apart from business, it's finding those stories. Mm, and yeah. it's such a disruptive time. It's hard to predict all of those things. puts a lot of plans in disarray. 
Yeah, I, mm. I tend to go around the world about four times a year, literally just going from country to country. So I don't spend all the time in the US or here. I, mean, I spend a lot of time in Europe and other, and other places in the Middle East. And it is really from meeting people that you find the stories. We, we just finished a big story to do with Africa, the Lavandelix, which was a story about Africa's richest woman and how she really made her money. And that came from a, a meeting with a lawyer who is a contact of mine who uh, I literally had lunch with in Paris and he, he mentioned a document set that they'd come across and sort of almost jumped across the, the table to convince them to give it to us and as to why we should do it. Again, out of public interest. It still comes yeah, back to context. It's sure. context. It comes, Incredible. It's the same as working for the Sydney Morning Herald. Mm. It is <laughs> who you know and how often you go and meet them. But also... It's about showing people that you're interested in something too. You know, it's about doing like, like all of our offshore stories, which we've now done, I think about you know, like seven or eight of them that are being major, all started with doing the first one and letting people know that we're interested in this topic and then showing them that we can actually do it. So much as that data journalism and the big scale, the millions of documents is vitally important to know how to crunch that. It's yeah. also still face-to-face meeting people yeah, making um, relationships. It is about relationships too. But honestly, I mean, there's opportunities that, again, recognizing opportunities. I mean, we're watching like technology kill journalism because it's killing our business models. But that, for me, was an opportunity to do journalism in a different way. And what we're showing now, using the power of the internet, that you can network journalists. The fact that that the old models are broken meant that media partners were willing to listen to new ways of doing things, which you would never have done, say, like 10, 20 years ago. Um, So when I first started, I remember literally going again I used to travel a lot and I would turn up at say Le Monde I distinctly remember Le Monde in France they didn't know who I was (laughs) we had a member who was a a journalist who was in the building and I think he'd forgotten that I was supposed to turn up I mean I was sitting there for nearly two hours downstairs waiting to see somebody I finally got in to see somebody and I remember talking to the editor thankfully got through to the editor at that time and she just said to me look you know why would we want to do it this way I'm like this is crazy you know this is, it'll never work you know so you get a lot of that pushback at the beginning but once you show it works and also you know once you start showing it works spectacularly well then others want to come and join in and you know you're talking about you were asking me earlier about how do you build the trust you build it slowly you're, you know we started by making mistakes by bringing journalists in that worked very well with us but also there were some journalists who didn't work well with us and so you make sure that the next time you're gathering you invite the ones that work well as a collaboration you're not really looking for superstars you're looking for people that are willing to buy into the model and then you sort of you know slowly build that up and I guess it's a bit like you know, I come from a big Irish family and, you know, the older kids tell the younger kids what to do <laughs> and that's what it's like. So every time somebody new comes into the ICIJ now on a, on a big collaboration, it is, you know, mind-blowing for them because they're going, well, well why would I want to share information? Why would I want to tell someone what I'm finding? You know, it, it's the opposite of everything they've been taught to do. But it's the older journalists, the ones that have done it before, that say, no, this actually works. Trust us. This is going to work. You know, it's crazy, but it works. And and you've got to share. You know, if you find the Queen of England, you've got to tell everybody. <laughs> well, thank you so much for explaining how the consortium has evolved into such a well-known brand now. It's not an overnight success by any means, that's for sure. No, it's been, it's a long, I mean, uh, the thing is too, you got to, uh, you always got to say like, where, like, how can it get better? You know, is this the beginning? I mean, 
mean, some people would have said, well, after Panama, you really can't do anything, a bigger story mm -hmm. ever again. I mean, we like brought three prime ministers down through it. But my feeling is that, you know, we, we did do it again with the following year. We did Paradise Papers. We've done three stories since. I think one day we'll have a bigger data set than Panama and we'll have a bigger story than Panama. Otherwise, why would you keep doing it? And, uh, you know, I think it's only the beginning of a journey, not the end. Optimism of a journalist. It's always the next story. There's more to come. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining the Journal Project, Gerard. No, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. <laughs> That was Jared Rahl, director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, speaking to me from his home in Sydney for this episode of Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project podcast. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.